want to ask you to pretend with me for a few minutes at least and uh, consider with me what I would do if I wanted to deceive professing Christians. If I wanted to mislead, if I wanted to control, if I wanted to have abusive, inappropriate power over professing Christians, if I wanted to make a name for myself, if I wanted to be the next Brigham Young, if I wanted to be the next Mary Baker Eddy, or Amy Simple McPherson, what would I do? What would my approach be? How could I manipulate people, control people, and make a name for myself? What I would do is I would follow a two-pronged plan, one that has been used again and again and again by deceivers who profess faith in Christ. I would get as good as I possibly could get at convincing you that God speaks to me. I would claim that God speaks to me, new revelation, and I would work it. I would do all I could, first and foremost, to convince you that God speaks to me. There's a long track record of false teachers, and that has been their stock in trade. The second part of my two-pronged plan, remember we're pretending, The second part of my two-pronged plan to control you, manipulate you, deceive you, mislead you, would be to do everything I can to get you to not have confidence in the true apostles. If I can do all I can to undermine true authority, true apostolic authority in the Bible... I'm able to manipulate you and control you. I would launch an assault. Maybe I wouldn't say they weren't apostles. Maybe I would say they just aren't sufficient apostles. But really what I'd be trying to do is to get you to not trust the scriptural record and before it was inscripturated, the apostolic record and get you to do everything I could to get you to trust me instead. Now thankfully, by God's grace, I have no intent It is not my desire to do this. I don't want to be the next Brigham Young or whoever else it might be. I do, however, want you to see the value and importance of the true gospel and why it is so necessary to not only to promote the true gospel, but at times it's necessary to protect the true gospel regardless, no matter what. Because if we don't do that, we're finding ourselves ultimately believing in something other than the Christ of the Bible. So if you have a Bible and you haven't already found 2 Corinthians, I'm going to ask you to find the second letter, or what we call 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. And what he does in 2 Corinthians is he defends his ministry. It's a defense of his apostolic ministry. There are times when he doesn't defend himself. There are times when we shouldn't defend ourselves. He's defending the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry. And we'll talk about what that means. Because that means defending the gospel. It means defending the truth about Jesus Christ. Because he's promoting the truth about Jesus Christ. And there are those who are attacking him and assaulting him. Trying to undermine apostolic authority while all along claiming that God's speaking to them so they can take his place and control and manipulate and mislead the Christians who are at the city called Corinth. So that's what he's up to and that's what we're going to be up to. Um, 
And I think you'll find encouragement along the way. I think you'll find encouragement to promote what's right, to defend what's right, uh, to think clearly and sanely about things. Uh, the Apostle Paul's attacked because things aren't going his way, and if God were on his side, certainly things would go his way. He would be happy. He would be rich. I mean, all these kinds of things are very relevant to us because it's kind of the same old, same old. It's a very personal letter, so personal it's hard to preach. Uh, some suggest it's the hardest New Testament book to preach. Thus, I've waited 20 years um, because, because it's so personal. And yet, it's nice because it's different. It's so personal. Um, he really is both feet planted defending himself, not because he himself needs to be def- defended, but because he is a true apostle promoting the true gospel. And if you lose that, you lose everything because it's tied to eternal life. So in that sense, he's in the fight of his life. So we're going to learn a lot about him personally. I don't want it to become Paul worship. He wouldn't want it to be that either. But because he's, he's hitched himself, if you will, he's hitched his horse to the gospel tree, they're one and the same. Okay, so we're going to be learning about that along the way. This morning what I would like to do is look at the opening two verses and then make some opening observations. So go ahead and look with me, if you would, at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians. Here's what we read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to introduce it this morning. Next week we'll talk about the God of all comfort, 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 because he says it so many times. So we're going to learn about how great God is comforting us. That's next week. This morning I'd like to introduce it. If you're a note-taking kind of person and that helps you to think, I have five points in my notes. There will be five introductory matters that we'll cover this morning. It doesn't really have a ring to it, um, but it's what we're going to do. Five introductory matters that will help us understand these verses and also kind of set the the mood and the pace for what we're going to do in the days ahead. So number one, apostleship is no small thing. Apostleship is no small thing. This is how you have to introduce this book, I think. Uh, it's a big deal. It's no small thing. We're going to see that first as we relook at verse 1. I'll tell you a story first. Uh, when I saw more apostles than I've ever seen, well, in my life, I, I saw, I drove on a, on a weird, I have some screws loose in my head, um, and so I flew to Pensacola, Florida years ago to pick up a, motor, a used motorcycle, um, stress used, because um, I was stressed out the whole way home as it broke down along the way. But anyway, I digress. So I flew to Pensacola to pick up a motorcycle and ride it back to Omaha. And riding through Alabama, I've only been to Alabama to ride through Alabama. If you're from Alabama, God loves you, and so do I. Um, I stopped at a gas station in Alabama. I remember that. Um, and I also remember seeing countless apostles. There were po- Alabama has got themselves some apostles. <laughs> there were so many churches, I couldn't believe it. I mean, there, there, were, ch- there were churches everywhere. And maybe it was just the route that I took. But it, and you're paying more attention because you can't talk to anybody and you're just watching things on the motorcycle. That's what godly people do. Anyway, so... 
There were churches in funeral homes. There were, churches, there were apostles in funeral homes based upon the signs. Well, I'm being a little facetious. I didn't see any apostles. But based upon church signs, they have got themselves some apostles in Alabama. I don't think there are any apostles in Alabama, actually. And I'm not trying to be offensive or rude or mean or anything like that. Apostles are a huge, big deal. By definition, they're extraordinary. Okay? They're not ordinary. They're not normal. And when Paul says about himself in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, flashing lights... Huge big deal. I realize he says that a lot, but he's saying it always on purpose. And if he's ever saying it on purpose, it's in 2 Corinthians because it's all about his apostleship. It's all about that. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means I've been uniquely designated by him, chosen by him, commissioned by him, and sent by him with his, what's the big A word that we need to know when we see apostle? It's authority. To my dying day, I'll keep emphasizing it. He has the authority of Christ. We're going to see this in 2 Corinthians. He's seen visibly before his very eyes the risen Christ. He's uniquely qualified, uniquely commissioned. He has the authority of Christ. This is why I say 2 Corinthians should be red letter. Okay, There's no distinction regarding when he speaks as an apostle, he's speaking with the authority of Jesus. It's a huge extraordinary big deal and it has to do with his unique authority it's why apostleship is so important it's why the false teachers who are no dummies are claiming to be apostles and trying to discount paul as an apostle because if they really are apostles they have every right to say whatever it is they're saying if they're true apostles so it's a fascinating kind of thing to be emphasized um we don't If you go ahead and look, go to chapter 13, you'll pick up some of the authority verbiage. It's in chapter 10 as well. I don't think we have to do this, but I want you to see it. Apostles commissioned, sent one with the authority of the one they're sent by. He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, even emphasizing the Lord. You need to do what he says. He's the ultimate authority, and he's commissioned me. But he definitely uses even the authority word in the letter. So... In chapter 13, verse 10, for example, I realize we're jumping into a foreign context, but I do want you to see it where he says, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to, uh, to be severe in my use of the authority. That would be a synonymous way of talking about his apostleship. My use of the authority that the Lord has given me. We also see it in chapter 10, verse 8, regarding our authority. It's apostolic authority. It's weighty. I mean, it's the ultimate trump card. And I'm not talking about presidents. Okay. If someone is really an apostle, you'd better listen to what they say. If someone's claiming to be an apostle and they're not... They're massive liars. Um, Apostles aren't dime a dozen. really is an extraordinary kind of big deal. We're going to see this throughout, so I don't need to kind of pre-preach the whole thing now. But probably a bigger deal than we would tend to think. I was reading a a book not long ago, a biography of a certain um, denomination, 
uh, and they talked about one of its leaders, and they were, they, these are people in the denomination writing about someone in their histories, the history of their denomination, someone who's been dead for quite a while um, before any of us were born. But the writers were very critical of him because they said oftentimes he wrote and conducted himself as if he were an apostle. And so even though he was one of their leaders, they were very critical of him because if you act like an apostle and you're not an apostle, you're an egomaniac, you're a problem, you're to be criticized even by your own. It's problematic. Paul is going to fight for his apostleship, not because he needs to fight for himself, but because his apostleship is tied to Christ and it's tied to the gospel and it's tied to eternal life. And so if we lose that, we lose what's most important. Their claim, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, apparently, based upon what Paul says, they claim to be super apostles. You know what? If I want to mislead people, I'm dropping that kind of thing. Well, maybe he's an apostle. We don't really think so. But by the way, because of what I've experienced and because of what I've gone through, because of what God has told me, I... I'm a super apostle. You should see my pajamas, right? <laughs> Second Corinthians eleven thirteen, he calls them false apostles, deceitful workmen. Uh, they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Chapter twelve, verse eleven, super apostles. He's probably using their verbiage and making fun of them. They're the super duper apostles because God gives them new, fresh things that nobody's ever experienced before, and He goes after them because it's undermining the true gospel. If you read through 2 Corinthians and you try to come up with all of the accusations that they make against him, it's a long list. So I'm not quoting actual verbiage, but when I read through it from start to finish and came up with a list of what the accusations seem to be, here goes. Here's the smear campaign. He's afflicted because he's ungodly. He's a braggart, he's a lowbrow, he's unsophisticated, he's lacking wisdom, he's vacillating, he doesn't keep his word, he's insincere, he's mean, he's harsh, he's unloving, he's too severe, he's self-commending, self-promoting, he's too bold, he's too focused on Christ and the new covenant and not enough on the old, he sees too much Christ-centeredness in understanding the Old Testament, he's undistinguished, he's opposed and therefore demonstrating God's lack of blessing. He's physically unattractive. He's illegitimate. He's an imposter. He's corrupt. He's in ministry for the money. He has a sinful lifestyle. He's too harsh in his writing. He's too too cowardly in person. He's jealous. He's a fool. He's boastful. He's overconfident. He's a man pleaser. He's a liar. He's weak. He's crafty. He's deceptive. He's lacking credentials and he's lacking experience. I mean, they're going after him. And Paul's response is he comes out swinging. Now, we probably have met people who always defend themselves no matter what. It's probably not a good idea to always have to defend yourself because sometimes when people criticize you, it's just easier to let it go. They're trolls. It's just easier to let it go because it's just... Ungodly. It's easier to let it go because you need to let it go because it's not public information or whatever it might be. There are times when we shouldn't defend ourselves. We see people who do it and we see it's gross. 
But once again, if the Apostle Paul is promoting the gospel that God reconciles sinners to himself only and extraordinarily through the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust, and you must believe in him for salvation, if if that's what Paul is defending and it's tied to him, he's got to defend it. And so 2 Corinthians has got some great gospel texts. I mean, think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just about the whole reconciliation reality and the righteous bringing us to God in Christ. I mean, it's awesome gospel stuff. But the reason it's in there is because he's having to defend that and he's not busy just trying to defend himself. He's defending himself because he's tied to that reality. That's why he's responding. It's a gospel issue. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. I referenced it, but didn't read it, but I have to read it. For our sake he, God, made him the son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I can't wait to get to that part. Apostolic authority, huge big deal. He knows what he's talking about. The other guys don't. We're going to see he's uniquely qualified to know what he's talking about. Let's move on to another um, opening observation that I think will be helpful, and that's the church and apostleship are forged. The church and apostleship are forged. So in our text again, notice the connection in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I circled of God because there's a connection. So it's by the will of God he's an apostle. Then if we keep reading, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, I circled of God again, that is at Corinth. Because there's a connection there. We've got, he's an apostle by the will of God, and he's addressing the church of God. See the connection. I'm an apostle of God. And you all are part of the church of God. Therefore what? This isn't rocket science. Therefore, I'm your apostle. Therefore, I have, have authority. If you're the Corinthians and you're being misled and, 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 and manipulated by these false, super-duper, pajama-wearing apostles, right? Um, if, if, if you're those guys, you want to be part of the church. We're the church of Corinth. That's a big deal. Church. Church is actually an Old Testament word from the Greek version. Uh, it's used like in Psalm 22 for the congregation, in the midst of the congregation. It's used even in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, it's used throughout in the Greek version. The church is, is where the, the, the chosen people of God gather. They gather for special things, for special worship, for hearing God's word. And so what, what did, and it carries itself over into the New Testament, the special gathering of God's chosen people for activities in worship. And so the Corinthians want to be that. We are God's special people in Corinth. We belong to God. We're the church of Corinth. They want that designation, but they don't want the apostle of God. They want to be the church of God. They don't want the apostle of God. And so Paul, right away, even in the introduction, is saying, You can't have it that way. You can't say, well, we're going to have our own apostles and you don't have any business here with us, Paul. No, apostle of God, church of God, I have things to say to you. I know things that are important and vital. 
I know what I'm talking, talking about when it comes to the gospel and grace and salvation and the people of God. So it's good to see the connection. He's already stressing these things. They're inseparable. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, some of you have already gone there in your mind, it's talking about the church. And it says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Church is built on apostolic authority. It's connected. And what I want to do is take just a moment and talk about how this might play itself out in our experience. I know people, have met people, have had serious sane conversations with people who love it that they're a part of the church, the the church of God. They're very committed in their their attendance and participation and, and, and wanting to be a Christian. But when I talk to them about things that the Bible says, for example, quotes from the Apostle Paul, they don't want any part of that. It's picking and choosing, or the Apostle Peter, or the Apostle John. So I'm a Christian, I'm part of the church, and I do all this, but I don't necessarily find myself under apostolic and scripturated authority. And Paul's going to make the point throughout the book, we're already seeing it, Church of God is inseparably linked Apostle of God. I can't say I want the church and I want Jesus, I just don't want what his apostles say. Paul's going to have no part of that. And so that might be a rub for you, might be a push for you. But if apostles are true apostles, they're the foundation of the church, and so I'm signing up for both. Signing up for both. It's a fail, to ha- it's an unworkable position to not have the two forged together. Again, as, as other people have observed, it's, it's a free country. You can start a religion, at least in some places. You can say, we're, we're, we're going to, you know, I like to call it pattyanity because it sounds so terrible. I wouldn't even join, right? Pattyanity. Gross. I, I could do that and say, Here, here's, here's my deal, here's my thing. But the Christian church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, also has apostles who have to meet unique qualifications. And we're going to see what those are like he meets. And so what he's going to say to the Corinthians is binding. And it's not a take it or leave it kind of thing. We don't want to listen to you. We like our super duper apostles or whatever it might be. Something to think about. Okay, let's take a breath and go to number three. Number three, even Corinthians are saints. Even Corinthians are saints. How about it? Right there in verse... One, at the end, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints, also including these guys, in the whole of Achaia. Achaia is the broader region. So Paul's addressing the the hub, if you will, in the middle, knowing what he says is going to affect all of Achaia. It's binding on them as well, and it will go out from the hub with the spokes to the rim, so to speak. Got to get a bicycle analogy in there. Maybe it was motorcycle. I don't know. Or an old car. Anyway, Corinthians are saints. There's a good theological lesson to learn here because it sounds so wrong. Corinthians, is it? people say, what was Paul trying to teach in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? He's trying to teach the Corinthians to stop acting like Corinthians. They're ungodly, 1 Corinthians is. 2 Corinthians, there's a different kind of ungodliness going on. 
in certain ways it's gotten better, they're saints. What? That doesn't seem right because saints are people who are great. They're people who do great things. You go stand outside of St. Peter's Basilica and you think, this is a great place with a great person's name attached to it. Wow! And in a sense, that's the right way of thinking. Because in biblical Christianity, you're a saint at the end of your Christian experience. Trick question, by the way. Are you a saint at the end of your Christian experience? I hope you are. When does your saintness, to make up a word, when when do you become a saint? At the end? You become a saint at the beginning. That means holy one. The Corinthians aren't so holy. And yet, he refers to them as holy ones. They're younger Christians. At the beginning of your Christian experience, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. And I was asking kind of a trick question. I hope you're a saint at the end of your Christian experience. Because if you truly are, you will be. Never mind. We're getting way off track, right? I bring this up to you because it's important to help us. It can help us understand Christ. Because it is gifted righteousness given to them freely like in chapter 5 because we believe in Christ and based upon our trusting our believing depending upon Christ and his work done for us in time and space history outside of us his work is finished when we trust in him his holiness his saintliness his righteousness is credited to us and and it's ours even if we're not living up to it yet. This is why Paul says uh, that God justifies the ungodly and they're, they're considered saints. So I think it's good to remember that because it's pushed back to some cultural uh, norms uh, and also good to remember he's writing to them, not trying to get them to do things to achieve sainthood. That's a, that's a fail. He's appealing to them who are saints, appealing them to do things. I should say one more thing about it and then we'll move on. He's not saying, since you're all saints, it doesn't matter what you do. This, this is a great test case for, for having that not be true. What we're not saying as a church, what I'm not saying as someone who believes in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, you're a saint at the beginning and saint throughout because it's all of Christ. What we're not saying, at least what we should not be saying or implying, is as long as you get that card punched by faith, it doesn't matter what you do. The whole letter of Second Corinthians is a testimony against that. The whole thing is calling them to, to, to believe and act and do the right things. First Corinthians was as well. In fact, even at the very end of the book, I'll just read it. It's a good end cap. I think I'll just read it because I thought I had it in my notes. Yes, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Finally, brothers, this is where he's been going, rejoice, aim for restoration. Something to be done here. It's not now that we're saints, we don't do anything. No, we're actually called to do something. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. It's meant to be going somewhere. It's meant to be helpful and life-changing. This is probably as good a time as any to talk about Corinth. So they're called saints, even though they might not be acting saintly. So he's calling them to act saintly. Uh, Corinth, I don't want to do a whole week on what Corinth was like because I wasn't there. But here's what scholars tell us, and it's interesting. So around 55 AD or thereabout in Corinth, 
what, was, what were things like? Um, well, if you look on a map and you think Athens, uh, it's an hour drive to the west, okay? So Paul didn't drive for an hour, but um, it's an hour drive to the west if you go to Corinth. I don't, can't remember jokes very well because I don't have a great memory, but I remember being a young Christian and somebody said to me, do you know that the apostles all own Hondas? And I was like, what? Well, we know they had Hondas because they were what? They were of one accord. <laughs> Such a dumb joke, right? I was like, but why do I remember the dumb jokes? So if you're looking at a map, you're in Athens, you've got to go to the left heading toward Corinth. Uh, I'll try to do a better job, right? Um, you're in Greece. Julius Caesar reestablished the city after it had been destroyed as a Roman colony in 44 BC, and it rose to prominence. Listen to this quote. In Paul's day, it was probably the wealthiest city in Greece and a major multicultural urban center. Rome was more significant. Alexandria was more significant. And then you've got Corinth. It's a big deal uh, to be addressing the big deal people in Corinth because Corinth was a big deal a pluralistic melting pot of subcultures, philosophies, lifestyles, and religions. Huge sports town, entertainment town. The Corinthian theater held somewhere between 14,000 and 18,000 people. That's in 55 AD. Um, The concert hall, uh, around 3,000 people. The Isthmian Games, try to say that um, if you're not really thinking about it. The Isthmian Games uh, were held there biannually, and that would only be second... uh, second to the Olympics. So big sports town, big culture town, music, entertainment, sexual immorality. It would be the kind of town it was known for that. If it was being promoted and marketed in the 21st century, it would be what? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It's that kind of place. Archaeologists have found temples, shrines, Uh, to all different kinds of gods and goddesses, Neptune, Apollo, Aphrodite, Venus, Octavia, Demeter, Kor, Poseidon. Um, One final quote, uh, one commentator says, pluralism in North America pales in comparison to Paul's experience in Corinth. Interesting. About a third were servants, of the population, about 1% aristocracy, you're born into it, and the rest would have been a massive, what we would call today, middle class. Opportunities to make money. Lots of people coming, lots of people going, a lot of things happening. There's a way to to move ahead in the culture, um, which makes it unique from some other cultures at the time. Lots of learning, lots of opportunity for pagan worship, uh, all different kinds of gods, and when you have all different kinds of gods, it tends to lead itself towards self-authority, because you pick and choose and you have your own spin and you have a lot of freedom to make it be whatever you want it to be. So interesting place. That relates us to number four, which will be super fast. Number four is legitimate apostolic authority and teaching is transcendent. Legitimate apostolic authority and teaching is transcendent. If it's true for Paul, the, the model is it's true for the Corinthians. And that's fascinating because Paul was not like the Corinthians. And the Corinthians were not like Paul. Paul, if he's a diaspora Jew from Cilicia, is addressing urban Gentiles in a Greek culture. Different background, different lineage, different culture, different kind of environment. And yet, he 
speaks as if they can understand him, and apparently they do. And he speaks with authority toward them and in their lives, cares for them. I bring this up because we're often told in our day, and it's all the rage right now, that I can't learn anything from anyone who's not just like me, who hasn't had my same experiences. And you're told that all the time as well, whether you're listening or not. What's so interesting here is, Paul's not like them. He doesn't come from the same background or the same culture, and yet, if he's a true apostle, now his writings are inscripturated, that tells us something. He not only can... He's compelled to, because we're talking about the truth. We're talking about objectivity. And so keep that in mind. It's not, it's not let's drop a big word, it's not monolithic. Well, you know, they were all Jews in Corinth. What? And so they listened to Paul, because he was like, no, it wasn't like that at all. But if you have the one true living God, who is God over all, Jew and Gentile, and he has one son through whom you must be reconciled to God, It doesn't matter who's speaking, whether they look like you, sound like you, come from the same shared experience as you or not. We're talking about an apostle of the Lord, overall, Jesus Christ, the one true Messiah. I found that to be worth the price of reading too many commentaries. That is so helpful. Okay, finally. Love and severity, number five, love and severity are not necessarily enemies. Love and severity are not necessarily enemies. In 2 Corinthians, you're going to get a huge dose of love kind of language. Not the five love languages, but we are going to get a lot of love, okay? About comfort and mercy and love and care. And in my heart and in your heart, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of care and sincerity in it, like I haven't seen before. It's, ri- it's, it's rich in that way. But boy, is it stiff at the same time. Both are true. They accuse him of being mean. They accuse him of being all of these things. And he's definitely firm, but it's because, it's, it, if you read the whole thing, it's, he, it's clearly because he cares. He clearly loves them. He's clearly burdened for them, and so he's willing to be extraordinarily bold and forthright at times. And that's helpful for us, I think, because sometimes when we're bold because we need to be bold, then we're just unloving altogether. There's a place for both, and he does a great job of doing both of these in this letter. And if Christ is the Savior that you must believe in and you must trust in, and that's being threatened and that's being compromised, it's a time to be bold. We're not playing games. But he's not just this person that's ranting and railing all the time unnecessarily because he has an apostolic complex. It's a great, tough and tender kind of thing uh, that that I find very appealing as a pastor. Um, I find it affirming as a pastor because, again, oh, you just mean you don't care about anything other than doctrine or whatever it might be. Uh, A good example, if you want to go ahead and look with me, uh, and then we'll close on this, would be chapter 11. It's throughout, but because the stakes are so high, I think chapter 11 is a good care, concern, but boy, does he take the gloves off kind of thing. One of my, as you're turning to chapter 11, one of my pastors um, 
in the past, started preaching on Sunday morning through Second Corinthians, and I don't know how far he got, and then he quit. Um, so pray that I don't quit. He didn't quit being a pastor. He just quit doing it on Sunday mornings because it's hard. Um, so we might go fast sometimes. Um, but I think you'll find it interesting. I found it very interesting. The more I read it through and mark it up and think it through, the more I find it interesting. And I, think, I don't think we'll quit. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. He's being... They're calling him a fool, okay? Read, read in between the lines. Okay, I'll be, fool for, I'll be a fool for a little while. That's what you're accusing me of? Bear with me. Do bear with me. Verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you, notice the image, like you're going to marry someone. I betrothed you to one husband. He's treating them like a bride. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve as his cunning, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We're going to keep reading in a second, but it's one of those, whoa. Fatherly speech, I care, I I, I was earnest. You call me a fool for these kinds of things. Well, let me be real sober-minded with you. My intent was your spiritual purity so that I could give you to Christ. Pure devotion, right thinking about the gospel, right thinking about Christ. That's very caring. Then verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. See, now it's stinging. You, you love teachers. You love preachers. You love all these people to tell you all of these lies. What in the world is wrong with you? He, he, it's harsh. But you see the love in it, I, I hope and believe. Verse 5, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. I think that's great. But if you're the one who's into idolatrous flirtation, it's going to sting, and it's going to sting badly. Because he's insulting your favorite teachers. But he's doing it, no doubt, we all can see, because he cares, and he loves them. So I hope we can learn some things about ministry, even through those kinds of things in the days ahead. We need to be done for this morning. Pray with me, if you would. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great Savior, Redeemer, Reconciler, Justifier. We are thankful for the fact that he says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. And we are grateful to know that we can rest in Christ and we can find ourselves even motivated to do good things because we can rest in Christ for acceptance by you. Bless our days ahead as we live our lives among our families if we have them, uh, Lord, and in the culture around us, in the life of this church. Bless us and encourage us that we might learn from this great book about how to promote and protect the gospel in a way that would honor Christ. In his name we pray, amen.